This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. Irreverent. Entertaining. Cool. You're listening to L.A. Talk Radio. Listening to All Things Therapy with Lisa Tahir, only on LA Talk Radio. Welcome to All Things Therapy. I am Lisa Tahir, your host. I am a licensed clinical social worker practicing as an intuitive psychotherapist. I'm certified in both Reiki and EMDR. I have physical offices in both Los Angeles and New Orleans. You can stay current on things going on through my website, which is nolatherapy.com. It's the abbreviation for New Orleans Los Angeles Therapy. You can book sessions, email me, inquire about being a guest on this show, and I'll feature things coming up in the future, like in On February 21st, I will be a guest on Living Consciously cable TV show. So more to come about that. And you can also subscribe to this show to hear past episodes and future episodes on YouTube, Google Play, and iTunes. So I'm really uh, pleased to bring my guest on in just a moment. It's such an honor to have on Dr. Irving Polster. He is currently director of the Gestalt Training Center in San Diego. He has authored six books to date. And today we're going to be speaking about his most recent book, which is called Beyond Therapy, Igniting Life-Focused Community Movements. And him and his, he and his late wife, Miriam, have been instrumental in advancing gestalt therapy to where it's utilized today in mainstream psychotherapy. And his career spans since 1946. And most of you listening probably know about the empty chair technique where you would speak to someone as if they were in the room. Well, Dr. Polster helped to create this and other awareness process techniques. So, Dr. Polster, please come on the show, and thank you for being with us today. Well, uh, thank you for inviting me, and I'm glad to be here. You're welcome. So, where would you like to start? Am I speaking loudly enough? Yeah, you're great. Okay. We're great. So, where where would you like to start today with your work with uh, the Gestalt Therapy? I suppose a good good way to start would be uh, to uh, give some sense of uh, why we would want to extend uh, the principles of psychotherapy beyond the actual therapy. Uh, We know that uh, psychotherapy has been a uh, means for helping people who are in misery, and uh, Freud long ago discovered that if you pay attention to your life uh, correctly uh, with the right proportion and uh, the right attention that it would help to improve lives and that was a basis for psychotherapy. The psychotherapy has become very 
well known in our society but what is not as well recognized is that the principles of psychotherapy apply to people in everyday life and don't and don't and are not limited to whether or not you have some uh, acute problem or some acute disturbance so what i'm trying to do is to present the uh, the prospects for a method of paying attention to the lives we live that will apply to people at large and help them to live the best lives they can live. To help clients become more fully alive and to... to right, that's a good way to put it, yes, yes. Work on unfinished business, to bring it resolution. And so, Dr. Polster, what you don't know, and for our listeners, we had some technological difficulty. So I know Gestalt therapy is about being in the moment and the meta communication. I feel a little anxious right now because all technology failed. And thank goodness <laughs> it just got started. So I'm a little off. So in a few moments, well, it's nice. In. It's actually nice to know that technology is human also. It is. It is. And so we didn't get to chat before the show, which I usually do with each guest. I actually have an audio clip to play at some point of a 36-second clip of Dr. Fritz Perls, who you worked with, and an audio clip of you working with a client. When we get into talking more about the aware awareness process of, yeah. of Gestalt, um, so just I'm settling into our show. I apologize for being a little freaked out. I just didn't expect technology to fail. So um, here we are. Well, what is the failure? Are, they, are we communicating to people? No, we're good. We're, we're live listening? now. We're live. I'm just used to oh, having you with yeah. me 10 minutes before to have a little chit-chat. So I'm a little oh, yes, indeed. thrown off. <laughs> I get it. I get it. <clears throat> so tell me about, I mean, your career spans since 1946. You have worked with thousands of clients, you, you know, have helped people to actualize um, based on experiencing the present moment and, and heightening that awareness. What would you like listeners to know about today? Well, uh, first of all, most of my work over those years was in a private office and was oriented to in a quasi-medical way toward uh, helping people in trouble. And okay. what I'm talking about now is something that would apply to people at large and would uh, uh, enter into everyday living, uh, everyday morality, everyday belonging, uh, everyday understanding of uh, what life is about and so on, uh, much as uh, people of religion orient people to those same questions with religious principles. Only what I'm talking about are principles uh, discovered through the psychotherapy process. And so the message of your book would be, would be what? Well, the, the method uh, would be to form congregations of people who would meet regularly over an extended period of time and who would address uh, certain themes that matter most in their lives, uh, themes such as uh, ambition, uh, disappointment, home, uh, contradiction of purpose, uh, uh, what is life about, uh, how can we depend on each other, a number of live issues that people deal with every day 
and deal with privately and in their own uh, particular ways, but which would be examined in a congregation of people uh, led by uh, psychologically trained people who had some background in uh, uh, knowing the implications of all of these uh, uh, particular uh, states of mind. Okay. So I'm hearing you want to affect positive change at a macro level with people going inward, kind of in there. Well, well, yes, one of the purposes is to effect change, but that's not the primary purpose. The primary purpose is to affect awareness and illumination about life, a kind of uh, sense of uh, perspective about living and a way of improving particular ways of of uh, understanding ourselves right so what i like about your work and i'd like to play the audio clips in just a few moments is that when you are doing therapy and i'm i'll play a clip of you in session you know you really bring to life not so much what is being said, the story, but but the mannerisms. If someone's fidgeting with their hands, if someone, um, you know, what the experience is. And that's why I felt comfortable sharing with you my nervousness coming on live. I'm used to having 10 minutes with my guest, feeling very relaxed, and that didn't happen. And so I'm having to you know, deal with the adrenaline surges (laughs) and calm myself down in this moment. And that's what Gestalt, you know, that's what a Gestalt is. It's, it's bringing the current moment alive, correct? For our listeners. Well, yeah, it's a lot more than, it's a lot more than uh, uh, mannerisms and such. It's a matter of uh, being faithful to the uh, complexity of our lives and being able to say what we want to say and do what we want to do and understand the implications and deal with the consequences and develop a life that is worth living and uh, uh, and uh, feels like it's what we want. Living authentically is what I hear you saying. Well, authentically, that's one of the catchwords about this process, yes. Authentically only means that... Uh, uh, it's uh, it's honest and uh, it's uh, straightforward and it's uh, directed toward uh, specific things that are necessary for living. Enlightenment. I'm thinking enlightenment too. Personal enlightenment. Enlightenment is a very good word and a well-known word for what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. So may I play the two clips right now for our listening yes, audience? Okay, for yes, those listening, this is Dr. Fritz Perls, who who founded uh, the Gestalt Therapy Movement, which you and your, your late wife worked with. So here we go. I'm going to play this 36-second clip. Gestalt, always, always a Gestalt therapy. That idea, where are you? Where are you in time? Where are you in place? Are you all there? Or are you at home? attending to some unfinished business and where are you in your awareness are you in touch with the world are you in touch with yourself are you in touch with this middle zone the fantasy life that is then interfering with the being completely in touch with yourself or the world 
Does that bring anything to mind for you? Well, uh, of course, he, he uh, uh, Perros was a, a master at evoking awareness and uh, made awareness a very popular term in our society. And I think that's very important, but it is a, uh, it's only one aspect of living. And awareness uh, itself is uh, insufficient. That uh, awareness always has to be integrated with action. Mm -hmm. It has to be integrated with relationship. It has to be integrated with purpose. And all of that makes it all the more complex. But awareness is a fundamental ground from which all these other things uh, have to evolve. And as I hear you say that, I'm thinking what interesting laboratories relationships are. What interesting laboratory what? Relationships are. That I think relationships oh, yes. are such interesting laboratories for us yes. and, and for growth and, and bringing things up that might have been hidden. Well, relationship is one of the fundamental uh, innate drives that people have. Right. We all are driven toward relationship. Whether we like it or we don't like it, we are, by our own biology, drawn toward otherness and integrating with otherness. We have to. Uh, we can do it in a million different ways and at many levels of intensity or success. But do it we must uh, one way or another. Yes. So... How is your approach different from conventional psychotherapy? Well, conventional psychotherapy has many faces. There are many, many forms of psychotherapy. It, it was at the time that it was introduced into our, our psychological culture, it was an antidote to the uh, Freudian system of emphasizing why we're doing things and wanted to go. Uh, into person's actual experience more than the reasons for the experience. So that was one of the fundamental differences that Gestalt therapy offered at the time that it came onto the scene, and uh, and it served as a contrast to the Freudian emphasis on uh, on meaning. Right. So you in your book. Life focus is, is a topic that you bring up. Can you share with us about life focus and what you mean by that? Uh, yes. Well, I'm, I'm thinking of one, uh, one group meeting where the theme for the meeting was home. Okay. And what we did was to read a, uh, a poetic segment that related to the concept of home and then have people break into smaller groups of three or four, and and uh, when they and after they formed their groups, we played a, a lovely song about uh, someone having come home to Tanzania. The beautiful music that inspired people to drink in the idea of home. Okay. And then they talked to each other about what home meant to them. And uh, one woman I remember spoke about the fact that uh, she came from uh, Poland to America, uh, married uh, uh, married someone who had visited in Poland, 
but uh, required him to promise that she would be, when she died, she would be buried back back home. Okay. And she told us a story of what that was like to feel that connection with her life back home, even though she was living in uh, the United States. And as the years went on, she became less and less concerned with being back home, but uh, it always remained a force in her life and a, a grounding for everything that she knew and everything was built on her idea of home. Well, that was one view of home, but other people had different views of home. And each of them uh, expounded what their feeling of home was, and they had a sense of the differences that home meant to different people, while at the same time knowing that home was a universal idea, right. that everybody had some concern with home one way or another. Some people said they had no home, and they wound up talking about different ways that they experienced what other people experienced as home, they didn't call home, but actually it served the same kind of purpose. It sounds, I think of the notion of nostalgia as I hear you talk about that story. Just nostalgia being a part of identifying what home is. Uh, yes, I think nostalgia would, uh, would be one of the instruments of uh, connecting with home. Mm-hmm. And you talk about in your book, too, about the compelling need for people to join together to focus on how they are living their lives. Uh, yes, yes. I, I think we, we are all we are all uh, formed by uh, being individual and being communal, and we can't drop off either part of that uh, formula. We are individuals, but we crave being a part of a larger unit, and yeah. people do that. They create that in their own lives. In many ways, uh, they they feel like they belong in a neighborhood or a country or a family or a friendship or a club, uh, a profession. There are so many different ways in which we feel we are part of something larger than ourselves. And, of course, there are many people who are interested in questions of uh, ourselves beyond what we know as an earthly Function. I I don't uh, uh, go into that uh, in the way that religion does, but I I do believe that that's a fundamental need of people to have a sense of where they fit into the universe. Yes. Yeah, beyond the the earth plane and the physical here and now. Yeah. In in whatever way that. The the here and now is a uh, sloganistic. Uh, sense of what's important in life, but it ignores the fact that the here and now can exist only in the context of a lifetime. Right. The here and now doesn't mean anything if it doesn't fit into something larger. Mm-hmm. So we have to be able to coordinate the uh, the here and now with a larger experience of uh, of our lives. Yes. You know, I, I know that today I have a lot of therapists and healers listening to our episode. And and for me as a therapist, I've practiced 20 years and I'm really compelled about the way you really work, you know, in the room with your clients and, and the way you highlight things. So I wondered if I could play this clip. It's a bit of a departure from what we're talking about, but I know that some of those listeners sure. are on wanting to know All about right. this. So I'm going to yeah. play. It's about a one minute clip. 
here we go. And this right is on. of you. I'm interested in your stupidity and in your silliness. Don't oh. you want me to be interested in the truth about you? There's nothing interesting to me. To you. There's nothing interesting to you in it. But to me, it's very interesting. Do you know the difference between you and me? Looks good. <laughs> Look how you're smiling now. Now, you, th you think yeah. that's silly? It's beautiful. No, I'm smiling for a second. So what? Don't, I'm that's, still that's silly. Why, stupid and you're depressed. so ambitious. You want some second to become a minute and a minute to become an hour, and you haven't even let the second happen. You won't even join me in the fact that you smiled beautifully. It does Can you change. enjoy it? No, it won't change anything. I'm not interested in changing you. I'm interested in knowing you. I'm interested in being with you. I'm not interested in changing you. I want to discover you. So before I heard that, Dr. Polsner, I was speaking with someone last night on a personal level, and I found myself saying something like, I wanted to create a shared environment for us to share our true selves, and I just wanted to know you and have this experience of being known. And, um, you know, I come home and I, I find this clip. So I wonder if you could talk to us about, about this, about what I just played. Well, uh, the, uh, one of the things that happens when people are, are create a shortfall in their lives by cutting out a lot of experiences and this particular person did that a lot the uh, the problem uh, is how can you reincorporate what you already have since the person who has shut out very important parts of their lives can't see that it creates what they need they mm. they don't they they just obliterate parts of themselves that are valuable yes because they haven't got something else that they need so uh, there's a way in which uh, people will very often think only this or that is important if i can't have this or that nothing else matters okay but actually you have to discover that other things do matter you have to discover what actually does matter, and that may happen, the mattering may happen, even though you haven't yet gotten something you are seeing as the uh, the main ingredient of what you need. Okay. So the problem is, how can you discover the reality of your existence, even though it may not fit your ambitions? So how, how do we do that? Well, by, uh, in the case of this particular person, a very tiny part of it was at least discovering a smile that was his smile. I didn't paint his smile on. He did it. I only noticed it. But he was unwilling to accept that he had it. It, was, it would have been an affirmation of small aspect of relationship with me, which he was not willing to uh, accept at that time. He was later on willing to accept it. And and then he he minimized it too when he said it's you know it's only a second it's not going to change anything like I think so many people do minimizing what what feelings they they're that is going on. Yeah, one of the one of the important things in therapy is for people to 
accept things as they are, even though they may not be all that they want them to be. But but things are as they are, and if you can do that in succession over a period of time, they become something more. And they may become what you originally wanted, even though that was not evident in the beginning. I think that's such an important piece that you're bringing up, just letting things be as they are. And how difficult that is, you know, to let things be as they are. It's such a challenge, I think, at times when experience goes differently than what what we'd like or hope. Well, if if, if you've been severely punished by your by your father, let's say, and you have a grudge, a permanent grudge about that, and then you smile with somebody, uh, somebody else. And it's almost a form of forgiveness. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it isn't the forgiveness of Father. It's an acceptance of, in this case, it was me. Right. W- why not accept that he smiled with me, even though he may not want to smile with his Father? Yes. And bringing that into the consciousness, into the consciousness of the room. Yes. It's a, re- a reincorporation of what's already there and that has been diminished by... Uh, the way we feel about it. Yeah. So how have you, and do you still work directly with clients at, at this point? No, I, no, I don't. No, okay, no, I have, to, I have to tell you. No, I, I, I retired from my private practice almost 20 years ago. I'm 94 years old now. It, amazing. And, uh, so I, I don't do any of that, but I still do uh, a number of things. I'm going to be presenting at a brief therapy conference next week. And okay. uh, so I do occasional things, but not very much. Okay. So his Except writing. I did write the I did write the book of that was published uh, within the past year or so. Yes. Have you Have you had and, a? F- Go on. I'm sorry. And then I'll. Well, ask that you. book That book uh, contains a lot of what I'm thinking about nowadays, and yeah. it's uh, available on Amazon, uh, and probably Barnes and Noble also. It is on Barnes and Noble and Amazon.com, Beyond Therapy, Igniting Life Focus Community Movements. What sparked you to write this book in comparison to the other ones that you have written previously? Well, I, I have to say that I, I was interested in the public utilization of psychotherapy a long time ago. Uh, and then I my career went in a different direction and I concentrated on other things and I, I left it behind. But in the 1960s, I, uh, I formed a group in a coffee house mm-hmm. where the, the, the people who came to the coffee house were what young, young folks who was near college at Western Reserve University in Cleveland. And um, uh, we had weekly uh, meetings uh, we called them encounter and uh, dealt yeah. with some of the uh, issues of the that young group of people, the issues they had with their teachers, with the police, with the society, uh, and uh, we would uh, discuss them uh, in the coffee house. So you did so, a lot of group experiential experiential work. Well, I did. I also did a uh, I did a joint. Uh, leadership with a with a rabbi in Cleveland where uh, we would meet with the group they would go over the evening services uh, that the uh, the rabbi would perform 
And during the services, of course, religious services all have some content to them. Uh, we would go over the content as it related to each of their individual lives, which doesn't usually happen in religion. You say, uh, you say prayers about gratitude for this or that, for example. Right. Uh, but you just say it for a moment, but you don't deal with your own experience with gratitude. Well, we did uh, deal with the experiences of each person uh, in relation to the things that they had said in the liturgy. How was it? And it was you, a very uh, enlightening experience. What was that experience like? Well, it was enlightening in terms of making the liturgy come alive in terms of their personal lives. That's really cool. Was I guess I'm curious what that actually looked like. Was it each person sharing their experience in that uh, context? Yeah. yeah, we were a group of about, I don't remember, about probably about 10 people. And um, it was long ago, so I don't remember, remember much right, of the detail. Right. But uh, it was uh, enlightening to them to uh, relate the religious service to their actual lives uh, making it, uh, making the service, the liturgy, less abstract yeah. and more pertinent to what what mattered to them. Exactly. But then I I, I left I left uh, Cleveland uh, shortly after that to come to San Diego, uh, and uh, I, I didn't continue with that. So, but I did in those days. I, I taught for a, a short period at Oberlin uh, School of Theology. Mm-hmm. And uh, then they moved to Vanderbilt, so I didn't teach there anymore. But I, I was teaching the uh, interrelationship uh, between um, religion and psychotherapy. Oh, that's so interesting, Dr. Polster. Well, I uh, I enjoyed it, and uh, I uh, I I went in a different direction during my career. But I've re- I've in this last in this last book, I've I've uh, returned to that concept. And I've developed it in a way that relates to what I have called, in the book, I've called it the uh, focus revolution. There's a movement out there in this world that is going on every day uh, that's very deep and very extended, and it gets very little, uh, uh, there's very little public knowledge about it, and it includes the mindfulness programs, the meditation, it includes... uh, 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 Alcoholics Anonymous. It includes religious r- uh, relational groups in religion. It includes organizational groups that deal with how work can be uh, a more productive place and a more satisfying place. And even, and I must say, uh, it's brand new, but uh, there's an incredible uh, attention to how we live our lives uh, uh, represented in Facebook. Okay. Now, Facebook is a pretty chaotic uh, phenomenon, huh. and some of it uh, serves people well, and some serves them very poorly, I think, and it's, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty anarchistic in the sense of not having leadership or continuity uh, in terms of uh, specifics of what it takes to live a good life so but so that while I'm not I'm very dubious about some aspects of the Facebook type of phenomenon I think it's an incredible entry into recognizing that people need to talk to each other about their lives 
Yeah, as the, in the example of Facebook, there are over 600 million people registered on Facebook. That's right. So, so what, clearly, what do you make of that? I mean, uh, you know, and, and all they're doing is talking to each other about their lives. Right. Well, that's why, to me, the, the audio clip that, that I just played really stood out to me, because I think our some of our greatest, one of our greatest need is to, to be seen and to be heard, especially. I mean, you can be seen, but that doesn't mean you're being taken in and absorbed and, and really yeah. being, being seen. I think Facebook is an offshoot of this deep desire that we have in our culture, yeah. you know, that isn't yeah. met adequately. But I think it does need uh, more, uh, more form and more design and, uh, uh, more recognition of the limits of uh, human communication and uh, uh, what serves well and what serves destructively. Uh, there's very little of that uh, entered into the process at, the, at this moment. You know, and I think just going back to the, the focus revolution that you speak about in your book, as I'm appreciating it, like a heightened sense of sharpening your focus, utilizing your breath, for example, to really tune in to the moment, would that be accurate for our our listeners to know? That would be one. That would be a, a part of it. Yes. And I think something like Facebook can really distract us from that focus. At well, the but same in time, any case, what I started, us. what I yeah, you know, what I started to say is that that there's this incredible movement out there that is given very little recognition in terms of uh, human needs for belonging, for congregation for being able to uh, direct their attention to the things that matter in their lives. We have to understand that when each person is faced with an incredible uh, sweep of experience every moment of every day of their lives. Right. And that we as people in in relation to that sweep of experience have to do something to coordinate it. We make selections from all that happens, and we have we find there are all kinds of contradictions that happen, things that we don't know what to do with, and there's a lot that goes uh, into the hidden background that doesn't get a chance to become expressed. I I refer to it as the accessible hidden, and in these groups we we evoke the accessible hidden, so people can tell the stories of their experiences that reflect how they see their lives and uh, and give hints about how their lives could go forward. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm just, again, fascinated how much of your work is in the context uh, of group settings in these kind of encounter groups. Myself coming up as a therapist in the last last 20 years, there's been more focus on on the individual. And I think you're able to gain some unique information from these group process experiences that one well, doesn't is, thing with individuals. Yes. Well, at the same time that this focus revolution is happening out there, there's also an increase in actual therapy. And I, I think I think the therapy that that is being done is very important in our society. I'm not I'm not diminishing the importance of therapy, mm-hmm. but I think it's a small factor when you compare it with the need for the society at large. Yes. 
Yeah, I don't hear you diminishing psychotherapy at all. It, it's almost augmenting it with these other aspects that, you know, yeah. uh, groups can, can bring. But the, but the thing is, when you talk about therapy, the word therapy means there's something wrong with you. Hmm. And we have to get over that concept. Yeah. That these principles that we call therapy are not only for something being wrong with you, they are for how people live their lives. People require, people as a whole require a central orientation and guidance in how to live their lives. Mm -hmm. Every society has it in one form or another. And one of the options for us is this large area of knowledge that we've gotten through explorations in psychotherapy that tell us about the things that uh, drive people's minds. You know, I, I know in researching a little bit about you and, and growing up in Cleveland, and I read that you were a doorman in a movie theater, I think in high school. <laughs> that, is that correct? Well, well yes, that's right. And, and yes, that, I, when I was in high school. Yeah, and, and I bring this up only to highlight that that's where, in my understanding, you learned a sense of how people may be different from who we think they are. And I remember. Uh, yeah, so it was a very yeah. uh, great eye-opener for me. Yeah. And do you want to tell that story about being in the tough neighborhood and these Well, that- yeah, I, I, I was, uh, when I was 15, I became an usher in a, in a certain movie theater. But when I was 17, they advanced me to becoming a doorman in a different theater, but the theater was in one of the tough neighborhoods in Cleveland. So I went there and did my job there, but what I discovered there was a number of uh, young young guys who had been to reformatories, and I came from a very law-abiding atmosphere and environment, and I, I thought of people who were in reformatories as being some other breed of, breed of being. <laughs> right. And, but they weren't. Uh, these guys were fun. They were kind. Uh, well, I'm sure they were not always kind, but they, they had these capabilities of human engagement, which were uh, very enjoyable, and I was stunned to discover that uh, the set I had in my mind about what these folks would be like was quite different from what they actually were like. Then I took a course in juvenile delinquency in college, and that flipped my mind over into uh, social work, and then after the war, I was in uh, in the uh, during the Second World War. After the war, then I switched into psychology. Yeah, you went from journalism to sociology, and then grad school in psychology. I think. My goodness, you know that. I do. I do. I love to know about my guests. And that's what I find so interesting. Like, if I may interpret or that, you know, what you learned as, as a young guy in high school about this curiosity and, and you know, who people present versus who they are has carried you through to age 96, I think, working with this theme in different and unique ways. That's been instrumental in my practice to yeah. learn from. Uh-huh. Well, that's very good that you do that. Thank you. Thank you. So what we have, we have like about five more minutes. I'm wondering what would you like listeners, you know, to know, to, to leave us with and, and just a takeaway and thinking just you've done so much in your career that you have to offer us. Well, I would just like to uh, uh, say that 
we are we human beings are evolutionary beings and we grow over the ages and the centuries and i think we are growing into uh, a people who are more and more oriented toward recognizing how we live our lives instead of just living them mm-hmm. and i think that's a very uh, important uh, uh, evolutionary force that goes from the primitive taking things as they are and moving them into what they could be and understanding that uh, we are all influenced by factors that we can learn about instead of only guessing about. Sure. And I think it's a very uh, noble process and I think it has its ups and downs uh, but it's basic to our existence and uh, and I think we're in a very developmental process of becoming some form of being that uh, will take account of more things than we used to be able to take account of. Mm-hmm. And I'm, this- I'm including morality, too. Uh, yeah. These groups would be a, a source of uh, development of morality. Uh, we have a morality now that uh, uh, that needs expansion and uh, modification. Uh, that uh, people have ways of being with each other that are quite different now than what they used to be. The whole idea of uh, kindness or ambition uh, or success, uh, uh, what's okay and what's not okay, uh, is something that the people at large have a hand in in designing. Mm -hmm. And these groups would be one force in doing that. Religion has done that, but... You know, it, was, it has been said by some people in the psychological fields that, that psychology is the uh, heir to religion. Okay, That's not yeah. to say that I'm not, I'm not damning religion in that score at all. You know, religion has formed a tremendous orientation toward how to live your lives. And while there are some aspects of uh, the religions as we know them that that don't square with psychological principles. Uh, the, the fact is they've served an incredible purpose of enlightenment and uh, uh, guiding people and orienting them about how to live their lives. And psychology is coming along and has its ideas, and it ought to in, uh, introduce them into the society at large rather than only into private offices. You know, at the end of your book, Beyond Therapy, you talk about the supernatural influence and and psychotherapy inducing a symbolic trust uh, that measures up similarly to the symbolic trust of religion. And and I'm really interested in the supernatural and where that boundary is, you know, between, um, say, therapy and the supernatural and the spiritual. Can can you talk to us a little about that, what you were... Well, I, I think the supernatural serves uh, some very important human purposes, and I do spend a couple of chapters describing the, uh, the overlap uh, uh, between the two, but uh, there are some uh, fundamental things that are human that are served by uh, religion and by the supernatural uh, that are also served in different ways by psychology. Uh, for example, uh, 
um, sanctification. What I think of as sanctification, I, I named four different ways that they're saying, but I can't go into all that right now. Sure. We only have a moment. But yeah. the sanctification would be one one factor. Sanctification to me is to have a place that's separate from everyday living, oh. where the rules of everyday living don't dominate your mind. And when you go to religious services, it's like you're out of the world right. into the world of... of, uh, of uh, uh, of uh, the universe, uh, right. there's a depth and uh, and a and a beauty beyond the uh, rigors of everyday living that we are embedded in when we go into a religious experience, and uh, uh, so uh, we need that. People need a way to get off the conveyor belt, right? And 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 into some uh, assured situation and sanctification psychotherapy. Uh, One of the main features of psychotherapy has always been when you come into that psychotherapy room, everything from outside world, most of it is no longer an admonition. It's no longer a barrier. Uh, You can say things you wouldn't say outside. You can feel things you wouldn't feel outside. You can remember things you wouldn't remember outside, and it's assured that you're going to be okay doing it because it's a sanctified situation. When you leave, you go back into the world. When you come back into the therapy room, you have the privacy of that engagement that allows you to be something other than you are in your everyday life. And I think people need that. And you have the permission. Yes, we need the permission. That's right. That's right. And we need that. And, of course, God is a major representation of sanctification. Everything is okay with God. Right. I mean, God is beyond ordinary standards. Morality, uh, yeah. God is, you know, forgiveness and understanding and uh, context and so on and so on. Uh, there are various there are different versions of God, of course. Uh, can't go into all that right now, but what I'm saying is that it's a form of uh, going beyond the ordinary everyday experience. It is. So that's one one thing that both uh, systems serve. And there are others, but uh, we don't have the time for it right now. Well, the, the last question I like to ask a guest, which, which might kind of dovetail into what you are saying, is what is it that you would like to leave you know, the world be remembered for as a legacy, if you will, even? Well, well that somehow we find a way of, uh, of being um, oriented toward life and guided in life together to uh, respect individuality while honoring the uh, community and find some way of coordinating those sometimes contradictory requirements uh, to be able to join the individual with the community and to honor both. That's beautiful. So uh, for listeners to to reach you, I mean, your book, Beyond Therapy, is available on Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. I didn't see that you had a website per se, but you are director no, of the Gestalt Training Center in San Diego where you have a, a profile about yourself. Yeah, I don't have a website, though. Sure. 
So for people to just read, go online and purchase this book and then the other five, which are so interesting as well, the population of selves. Um, I'm blanking on the other names right now. Every person's life is worth a novel. Gestalt therapy integrated, I think, as well. Yeah. Yes. Dr. Polster, it's been such an honor to have you on my show because your work okay, has, well, thank been, you. has been really instrumental for me. Thank you. Th- thank you so much for having me. And I'm, You're welcome. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Have a good day. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. That concludes our show today. Join me next Thursday where I have another guest on. Uh, same time, same place. Bye-bye. Listening to All Things Therapy with Lisa Tahir.